Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Everyone always wants to start with the third F, but we'll get there. I promise. <laughs> Let's talk about fear. We'll talk about fight or flight. One of the things that I use with my clients, and just one of the things I teach, is heart rate variability training. This was profoundly effective for me. In fact, if they do this before soldiers go into combat, the soldiers have a much harder time getting PTSD. All you do with this kind of exercise is you clip a hundred dollar sensor to your ear, or use a chest strap, and you look at your iPhone, and it tells you to breathe in, breathe out. Emily just told you to do that, right? There's just a little difference. The difference is that you need to breathe in and breathe out and make the light turn green. And when the light turns green, it means that you've successfully changed the space between your heartbeats, which sounds a little bit odd. It's because when an animal is in that fear space, whether you're getting ready to fight or run away, your heartbeat becomes very regular. Da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum. When you have exactly the same number of beats per minute, but you're not ready to run away, what you end up with is a very different kind of heartbeat. Your new, calm, not afraid heartbeat is like this: da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum. Same number of beats. Same amount of time, but spaced differently. It's very hard for me to say change the spacing of your heartbeat during meditation. You could probably spend two years sitting in lotus pose doing a heart-opening Buddhist-style meditation and achieve the same state. It's just easier. It takes about 10-15 minutes a day for about six weeks to have the skill. And what really is cool with this is that as soon as you get the light to turn green, you're like, all right. I turned off my fight or flight, my sympathetic nervous system, and I turned on my parasympathetic nervous system. You're sitting there going, "All right, I feel pretty good." In fact, I had one computer science guy, a super engineer, a little bit Asperger's, calls me after six weeks. He goes, "Dave, I did it for two hours straight, and I think I experienced bliss." Okay, my entire time in Silicon Valley, I don't know any computer science programmer guys who would use the word bliss unless they were at Burning Man and on something. <laughs> So I was pretty impressed. Breathe in, breathe out, and do this thing. And this goes back to the question: How do you know one person's experience when another one? I don't, but I can tell you what it's like when you do it. In fact, we can do it together if you guys want to do it. We don't have the sensor to tell you did it right, but you'll probably feel a difference. So I'll guide you through it. What you do: You're going to breathe in for five seconds, and you're going to fill a balloon from the center of your heart. So starting right in the middle of your chest. Fill a balloon. You can make it this big. You can make it as big as the planet. It's all up to you. But as you breathe in, it just inflates. And when it's full, you are going to picture the physical feeling in your body of the most blissful, happy experience when you hugged your mom, when you met your spouse, whatever means the most to you, your best friend. You get that feeling in, and then you let the balloon pop and shower it down around you. So you ready? Breathe in for five. Fill it up. Visualize the feeling. Make the feeling happen in your body, and then just allow it to rain down around you and breathe out. If you do that for ten minutes, even without a sensor, it's a powerful meditation. If you do it with a sensor, you know exactly when you got it, and it's a very fine nuance. 
One of my clients runs a billion-dollar hedge fund, and he only does this on airplanes, which is a great place to do it. And he called me up, all excited. Dave, I didn't believe you. I finally bought the sensor. I did it on a flight to Hong Kong, and I felt really, really good. In fact, I started doing it every day. So I got super green zone. I, you know, these are Type A guys. Super green. I'm good. So he takes it into the office, and he puts it on his ear, and he does his breathing before the market opens. The second ding, the market bell rings. It turns red. He stayed in fight or flight mode the entire eight-hour trading day. He couldn't make it go green, and it pissed him off because he realized he wasn't as in control of himself as he thought he was. It took him two weeks of training for him to be able to trade through the day without going into fight or flight mode. The change in his energy was that at the end of the day, he wasn't cranky, he wasn't tired, he wasn't pissed. He had energy to go play with his friends. He was burning less energy because he stopped the automated fear response. You do the same thing with the dog. The dog's afraid of loud noises. You slowly expose them to loud noises. You pet them, and you do all the other things that make them calm down. So suddenly, a dog that would have been freaking out and climbing the walls stops climbing the walls and sits there. This is a way of doing that. Heart rate variability training. I use a couple technologies. There's a bulletproof app. That'll monitor what your heart rate's doing all day long, including this kind of thing. It's called Stress Detective. I think it's five bucks or something. Not a huge part of the business, but it's something that's cool. And the one that's good for on again, off again training is from the Heart Math Institute. I carry it on my website. It's called the Inner Balance Sensor. You can also buy it on Amazon. It runs about a hundred bucks. And this is one of those things. It changes your brain waves. It does so much. It is the single fastest way that I know to take someone who has Fear, which we all do, and to turn the, the dial down enough. The most powerful thing might not even be learning how to turn off the fear, but just learning how to feel when you go into it. When I thought I was really, really good at this, I put the sensor on my ear and I went driving in Silicon Valley traffic. Every time someone cut in front of me, my body wanted to kill them. <laughs> it took me two weeks to be able to drive in traffic without a blip. Someone cuts me off. Maybe they're dying. I don't know, but it's not my problem. I don't have to own that anymore. All that power that went into wanting to kill idiots actually now goes back into changing the world. So stop the leaks. This is a major one. Another one, something that I do with my kids every single night. I'll offer it to you. They're nine and six. It's Anna and Alan, and I say, "All right, tell me a win today. Tell me something that you worked on that you got." You should do this too, and tell me a fail. People are like you talk to your kids about failure. Hell yeah! Like you didn't have any failures today. I'm sorry. Maybe tomorrow you'll do something that makes you learn. <laughs> yeah, it's really too bad. I'm. I know you can do better tomorrow. <laughs> Seriously, this happens every night. Actually, most nights they go. I did have a fail. I was working on this and it didn't happen. Right? I was trying to draw a bunny and it didn't look like a bunny. It was a failure. Good job. I love that failure. Okay, do that for yourself. But the biggest thing of all there is gratitude. That turns off your fear thing and, to some extent, your feast thing. And when you tell your nervous system that the world is an abundant place, it is a free biohack that completely changes things. It's just gratitude. Three things you're grateful for. And I do it with my kids. I tell them what I'm grateful for, and sometimes the damnedest things come out. When my son was about four, he said, "Daddy, I'm grateful for the Big Bang because without it, there wouldn't be anything." 
Great one. <laughs> if you do that every night, whether you write it down or not, it doesn't matter, you cannot go to sleep in a fight-or-flight mode. What that's going to do is transformative because it will improve the quality of your sleep. I have no doubt that you're going to hear from several people over the course of this week and probably every week telling you sleep more, sleep more. And I would respectfully disagree. Sleep better, sleep better is more important than sleeping more. Sleep as much as you need and as little as you must. <laughs> because you slept so damn good, you're ready. And part of the way you go to sleep at night and you go into deep sleep and you have good dreams is you practice gratitude before you go to sleep. It could be the worst day of your life. I'm grateful I'm not going to have another day like this. Boom, gratitude, okay? Always. It's a requirement. We talked about sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, guess what your body thinks is going to happen? You're going to die. All the body cares about is not dying and making sure you live long enough to reproduce, and then you're done. Okay, that's the meat operating system. Well, if you are short on sleep, your body's fear of being tired can tax you enormously. If you can change your mindset to say, you know what? I'm jet-lagged. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I chose not to get enough sleep. Or something happened, I didn't get enough sleep. My body doesn't feel as good as I want it to feel. I'm not going to die. You'll have twice as much energy that day. You're still tired. There's still a biological cost of not getting enough sleep. But the biological cost is much less because the stress about being tired was worse than the actual tired. And that's an interesting thing that you don't hear talked about. The cure for that is just coffee. Just kidding. <laughs> the cure for that is hypnotherapy, heart rate variability. In fact, if you're really exhausted and you do a little bit of heart rate variability, you'll feel that your body's like, God, I feel like I'm going to die. You're in that sympathetic state, and you can shift yourself back to parasympathetic. You're like, okay, I accept the fact that I'm tired, but I'm not going to die. And this comes down to controlling your nervous system. The other thing that hacks fear enormously is neurofeedback training. The 40 years of Zen stuff that you heard Vishen talk about. I spent 10 weeks of my life and sent hundreds of people through this program with electrodes glued to my head. I have 50 plus thousand dollars worth of EEG equipment sitting in my labs in my backyard <laughs> that I use on myself, on my wife, on my kids. My kids actually get neurofeedback too. Talk about someone on earth really struggling to get their mind working, to just show the mind what it's doing. From one perspective, it's a mirror. It shows your mind what it's doing. Your mind doesn't know that it's flopping around. Your mind doesn't know that it's doing things that aren't productive to try and keep you alive. Because unfortunately, the mind has no nerves. Like the brain doesn't have nerves that go into it except the fifth cranial nerve, something tied to your molars, if memory serves. So it doesn't know it's interstate. Everything in it is pushing out. It's looking all around you, and it's sensing. It's sensing light, smell, taste, temperature, pressure. It's actually sensing from a magnetic perspective. Your heart senses the hearts of everyone around you. And this is actually shown now. If my heart is, has a high coherence, this heart rate variability stuff, your heart will actually resonate with it. And if I'm super stressed, you'll pick up on that. And some of us are more sensitive than others, but this is the state of being an animal. Animals pick up with us too. You know, the guy who can walk up to any animal and the animal says, hi. And then the other person who walks up to any animal and it runs away, well, they're picking up on our nervous system state. And it's not something that you're probably conscious of, but it's something you can be conscious of. With 40 years of Zen, with neurofeedback, things like that, 
you just become aware of the voices in your head. And I eventually got mine to turn off. So there isn't a voice in my head. It just went away. And that was precious. Along the way, I learned to be able to take what would be an incredible amount of work stress. And I'm not stressed about work. I love what I do. We have coffee shops opening. <laughs> I have a top-ranked podcast with 32 million downloads. Just signed another book deal for two soon-to-be New York Times bestsellers next year sometime. <laughs> and I'm working on a TV show now uh, with one of the top groups in Hollywood and a whole bunch of new products and new coffee shops. And I have a family and kids and I see them and I go to sleep at night without all this swirling around in my head because I turned off all that shit. And that was huge. Now, I spend a lot of time on fear because it's such a big thing. But let's talk about those damn cookies, all right? If your body is partitioning energy wrong, i.e., it's going to your butt, not to your brain, then you have an energy problem. You're eating too much sugar. You're eating the wrong things. You're eating too often or not often enough. Your blood sugar swings. When your blood sugar swings, the brain says, I don't have enough energy. Guess what it thinks is going to happen when it doesn't have enough energy? I'm going to die. You think it would think of some other things, but apparently if you want a species to live forever, you really get them focused on death. So it says, all right, I'm going to hack my blood sugar. I'm going to squirt out some adrenaline. I'm going to squirt out some cortisol. It's going to raise my blood sugar. Guess what adrenaline and cortisol trigger? Fight or flight. So all of a sudden now, all day long, you're trying to be in this calm and focused state, and then you ate stuff that triggered a blood sugar spike and a blood sugar crash, and you have a problem there. The reason that I wrote The Bulletproof Diet wasn't to lose up to a pound a day, which is what you put on the cover of books when you want them to sell a lot. It was actually so people could have more willpower. And I couldn't convince my publishers that willpower was a big selling point. I would gladly weigh 100 pounds more and feel this way. I'm already married. I already have kids. <laughs> right? So it's not that important that you look a certain way. It's important that you feel a certain way. And when you have stable energy delivered to the brain, your willpower goes up dramatically because your brain stops worrying about these crashes. What's for lunch? What's for lunch? You don't care what's for lunch because you have enough energy. In fact, you could skip lunch entirely and you wouldn't care. And you'd be able to keep bringing it all day long. And I can run circles around the 25-year-olds who work for me. I'm 43 and I couldn't do that when I was 25. I have more energy now than ever because I have stable delivery of energy to my head. There's a three-letter word that starts with F that causes that. Anyone want to guess it? Fat. Exactly. And I think Mark Hyman's going to mention fat at least once. He just wrote a New York Times bestseller also. Eat fat, get thin. That's a good book. I also like The Bulletproof Diet. But the whole point there, there are certain fats you can eat that trigger different feelings in your body. And when you do that, the voice in your head that says, eat, 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 shuts the hell up and you win. The reason I have for probably eight years now had Bulletproof Coffee every morning is because I don't care about food when I have it for breakfast. I had it for breakfast this morning. Not because I'm trying to sell you guys on Bulletproof Coffee. It won't change my life if you choose to drink it or not, but it'll change your life. And it's that big of a thing. You can also do some advanced techniques like Bulletproof Intermittent Fasting. There's supplements you can take that reduce cravings. But for the most part, if you just get the biological energy stable and you stop eating things that cause inflammation and cause cravings, you'll feel amazing. 
and you will have so much more willpower than you ever thought. You're not worried about dying all the time from the fear side, and you have all this energy, and you're not wasting it worrying about whether you can eat the cookie or not. The cookie loses its power. It's not kryptonite anymore. It's just a damn cookie. That's cool. Now, my favorite part of the talk, the final F word. What the heck do you do about that desire? You could take the approach that Harvey Kellogg, you know, the guy who wrote Kellogg's Cornflakes, he realized that male sexual desire was the root of all of society's evils and created a whole line of foods to reduce male sexual desire. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's actually where cornflakes came from. If you don't believe me, you can Google it. It's on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> it actually is true. I went beyond Google. That's scary. And graham crackers, too. He was part of that weird cult of, like, sexual desire is bad. But if you read Napoleon Hill... He talks, in fact, an entire chapter of Think and Grow Rich, like the first book that released a lot of this knowledge that's still circulating in the self-help, personal growth, personal improvement space. He wrote a whole chapter on sexual transmutation, on how you can take energy that your body really, really wants to spend on reproducing, and you can put it to work to change the world, literally. And I paid a lot of attention to this, and this is something I practice. I gave a talk in 2011 at the Quantified Self Conference, which is probably the most embarrassing talk I ever gave, because I was testing a Taoist equation. The Taoists actually wanted to live forever. They were immortal-seeking people, which I'm actually on that. I, my goal is 180 years, and I don't say that like laughing. I really am working on 180 years. I'll do everything in my power to get there, and if I don't, I'll be dead, so I'd probably be okay with it. <laughs> but what they figured out was, for men only, there's an equation, and it's age in years minus seven divided by four, and that yields a number. At the time I did this test, my number was eight, which means if you want to maintain your health, do not ejaculate more than once every eight days. And if you want to live a really long time, only ejaculate once every 30 days, no more frequently, and please limit your orgasm to less than one hour. This is for men. This is only for men. I'm like, holy shit, I got to try that. Why, I'm a biohacker. I could quantify it. And plus, like, who wouldn't want to try an hour orgasm? And no, you don't turn yourself inside out. The Taoist teachings for women were, have lots of orgasms. <laughs> now, you see the problem here. That little voice in your head that says, if you don't ejaculate in that beautiful place right now, you are going to die. The world will come to an end. Okay? You got to get control of that voice in your head if you're going to try and do that, or you have to have a wife who's really willing to cooperate with your bizarre experiments, which mine thankfully was. So in this talk, I actually graphed my daily happiness level, my satisfaction with everything in my life, with my frequency of sex and frequency of ejaculation. That's an embarrassing talk, because here's the experiment when I tried to go 30 days, and on day 24, there's an oops. All right, let's start over. The video's online, and one of the more embarrassing talks I've given. But I can tell you that my happiness level was so much better when I ejaculated less. There's also a really cool thing that happens. You could, like, draw the math for it. The less often you ejaculate, the more often you have sex. Because you're like, I'm still horny. I have to have more, right? And that brings the woman to more orgasms, which makes the guy go, I need even more sex. So it actually improves your sex life if you don't, I don't know, what's the polite word for it? Don't shoot every time? 
Whatever the right word for that is. When you have mastered that Labrador inside you that says, if you don't ejaculate right now, the world will end, and you teach it to sit down and shut up and to ejaculate when it's allowed to, just like the dog with a piece of popcorn on its nose, number one, you'll be a damned good lover. And number two, your ability to do things in your life will change in a way that you would never believe. I've had Bulletproof followers, people I've coached, like, Dave, I went 30 days without masturbating, 30 days without ejaculating. I got a $30,000 raise. <laughs> I started a new company. <laughs> and I'll tell you, to this day, that that Taoist equation is one that I follow, and there's no way in heck I'm going to walk around ejaculating all willy-nilly. <laughs> I got shit to do. Now, on that note, you've just learned three F-words, but you need the other two F-words that are the most important ones. One of them is feel, because it doesn't matter if some guru, even me, says something works, and when you try it, and you try it consistently, and you do it right, and it doesn't work, you'll feel it. And that is the most important kind of evidence there is. In fact, it's called empirical evidence. And it is no more or less important than phase two clinical trials kind of evidence. So when you see someone say, I practice evidence-based medicine, what they're actually saying is evidence-based means I reject most evidence unless it agrees with my theories. Unfortunately, that's how it's used today. There's actually a hashtag for that now. It's called science troll. So when you see someone who comes in and you say, you know, I felt great. When I did this stuff, you know, there's something to this. And they go, that can't have happened. That didn't happen. Dude, they're just a science troll. They stop listening to the evidence that, you know, I hit myself in the head, it hurts. There's no double-blind trial for that. Therefore, it doesn't hurt. So that's one thing. Feelings really matter. And you got to listen to those. And the second thing is figuring the other F word. Read the research. If you're going to try something crazy, look at that. Because there's great value in the research that drives evidence-based medicine. But if you do just the figuring and the thinking without the feeling you'll do dumb things like eat a low-fat diet for 40 years and make the country obese. It doesn't work. You can see if it works. We have mirrors, scales, and also, how do I feel right now? That's the biggest question for you. So now you're all master biohackers. Thank you. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.